0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Time to drill deep on the question of oil and diesel, because drilling is how we get the oil that gets turned into diesel. And we'll have our guest of the week in a few minutes. Twice a year, Amit Mahotra of Deutsche Bank joins us to talk quarterly earnings. He'll be here in just a few minutes. Let's talk diesel to start things off. Though there is so much focus on the price of crude as the primary primary determinant of the price of diesel, and that makes a lot of sense crude is the primary factor in how much we pay at the pump. But crude oil is a mostly worthless product as is. You can do two things with it. You can throw it into a boiler and burn it to make electricity, and that's a tiny use of it. Or you can refine it to make diesel and gasoline and jet fuel and all sorts of other stuff. What is becoming clear is that what's going on with the latter activity is inadequate. The International Energy Agency, which is really the most widely respected study group out there, It came out with its monthly report on Friday. There's lots in there. We could talk about it all day if you'd like, but I'll spare you that. But what really struck me in the report was the decline in refinery throughput around the world. You can have more crude than you know what to do with, but if you don't turn it into gasoline, diesel, or something else, as I said before, it's pretty worthless. I will not snow you with numbers here, so let me just give you some of the basics. The IEA looks at all the numbers, and here are the key ones. In 2021, refinery throughputs were up 3.7 million barrels per day after falling 7.2 million barrels per day in 2020 due to the pandemic. But the point is that 3.7 million barrels per day is nowhere near demand growth. For the year, demand growth globally was 6.6 million barrels a day. And as the year progressed, the failure of refineries to make enough product got even worse. Refinery throughputs are expected to increase this year, But the problem is that the failure of the world's refineries to make enough product in 2021 is why we have such tight inventories. And the IEA doesn't see those inventories significantly building in the coming year. Where has the average diesel consumer seen this then? It's in the spread between diesel and crude. The IEA also publishes spread numbers. What they do is they take the value of a barrel of diesel and they just put a raw number on it. For January in the Gulf Coast, a barrel of diesel averaged $106 per barrel a month ago. In December, it was a little less than 92. Then they also look at the spread between those product prices and the price of crude for diesel in the Gulf Coast. It was more than $22 in January. A month earlier, it was just below 19. So you can see where the failure of refineries to make enough product is really starting to squeeze the price. I could throw a lot of other numbers at you, but they all pretty much say the same thing. Diesel is tight relative to crude. It's moving up faster than the price of the basic barrel. The IEA also had a chart showing refinery input. I put it on my Twitter feed, which you can find at John H. Kingston. It shows refinery throughput in the last few months of 2021 and into January going down. It isn't supposed to do that. Refinery throughput drops in early spring and early fall when refineries undergo maintenance. It is not supposed to be happening in December and January when we're getting ready for winter and the refineries are supposed to be making heating fuels. There's not a quick turnaround for this. The IEA reported that the world lost almost 3 billion barrels per day of refining capacity between 20 and 21. We lost a few here in the U.S. There is new capacity coming online in 2022, but the IEA reports that most of it won't be coming online until the end of the year. And then there's natural gas. Natural gas fuels the operations at a lot of the world's refineries. The world price of natural gas was elevated most of last year, and natural gas, as I said, is used to operate refineries. The high natural gas prices killed the economics at a lot of plants, so some of them cut back or some of them bit the bullet and just shut down. Again, bad news for diesel consumers. I'll finish by saying that this is your regular reminder that the price you pay for diesel at the pump is the result of many, many moving parts. Anybody who tells you it's all somebody's fault or it's because some bad guys are greedy seriously doesn't know what they're talking about. We're going to move on here at Drilling Deep. And twice a year, like clockwork, we're in our old friend Ahmed Mahotra to talk earnings as the earnings season winds down. It's been six months, and here we are again. Ahmed, of course, is the head of the transportation research team at Deutsche Bank. First of all, Ahmed, this is your first winter in Atlanta. How's it going? It's nice and warm over here, actually. The
1: sun's beating down, and I think it's about 60 degrees. So we had no snow. We had a little bit of snow here,
0: which was great for my kids, but it's very much different than the Northeast for sure. Yeah, you you missed at least one decent sized snowstorm up here. And it's kind of been cold, even though we haven't had a lot of snow. So anyway, glad to hear it. So let's get right into talking about the earnings. Um, I guess we're kind of getting to the point where the comps are getting tougher, because the comps are starting to be against the rising truck market that really took off in the third quarter of 2020. Uh, How are the comps doing? Were you expecting them to be even worse, given that the the, the bar was set relatively high? Well, I mean, I I think, um, you know, when you look at Earnings
1: just solely from the trucking perspective, I think um, it was a little bit of the same for the last quarter. For example, utilization was pretty weak because driver availability is is still a problem, but the pricing continues to be off the charts. I mean, up 20, 25% year over year in terms of what trucking companies are achieving on a revenue per mile basis. And when you look at the guidance, at least through the first half, It's uh, a moderation from what was achieved in the fourth quarter. But but John, we're still talking about 15 to 20% increases in revenue per mile for these companies through the first half of this year. And uh, time will tell in the back half. Listen, everything doesn't go up straight um, uh, in a straight line up and to the right. Uh, There's definitely moderation that should be expected in the back half of the year. But uh, I think there will be growth on top of all-time high levels, So I'm not forecasting a contraction at all in pricing and earnings in, in 2022. And really, there's a potential for 2023 to also be uh, better or maybe as good as 2022 uh, from the context, uh, from the perspective of earnings, if some of this congestion continues that it has over the last few months.
0: You know, there's a, that old economic dictum, as you probably heard, Herb Stein, who was Richard Nixon's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He said one time, Said if something can't go on forever, it won't. And <laughs> right. Probably could have done a year ago, but based on your forecast, I mean this isn't going to go on forever, but it's going to go on for a while. listen, can we
1: just talk about you know i think I think there's a lot of talk about congestion and you know the reasons for congestion, whether it's labor availability or supply chains kind of upside down but let's just let's just start with the premise of demand okay you know i I hopefully you remember in kind of June of last year, we presented this this term. Calling the transports being in the golden age of transports and what that really reflected was the fact that you know household net worth was over 140 trillion dollars had never been as high as it is currently and against that net worth um growth and level, uh, leverage relative to that net worth is the lowest level since it's been since the mid 1960s. So we can talk about labor and we can talk about supply and we can talk about equipment shortages, but the underlying core reason for this congestion and this pricing improvement is the demand that's, that's, that's there, that's underpinned by all this really healthy consumer that is really, um, you know, buying things left, right, and center. We don't, expect that to change now in november of last year when we published our outlook report we sort of raised the yellow flag for the first time in five years because monetary policy was it was getting harder um uh fiscal policy was not going to be as generous in 22 and that was just going to have a risk for um you know uh, of, of multiples and stock valuations and that played out Exactly as we expected in the month of January, where we think that there's some compelling opportunities like companies like Saya or other companies that have really seen some declines in equity value on the back of this uh, difficult January that we've had. But um, this is all predictable, and, and and I would say that if people had followed our research and Deutsche Bank's research, I think they would have a really good understanding of kind of the core drivers behind some of this congestion and also some of the risks over the next 12 months as it relates to stimulus, fiscal or monetary, and how that may change over the next 12 to 18 months.
0: Yeah, when you talk about things like that, it sounds like you know, talking about how companies did in the quarter seems almost very short-sighted because you're talking about really a secular trend. That's been going on for quite some time, and as far as you can see, has a lot of time to run. But let's bring it back to the quarter anyway. Sure. Uh, overall grade for the truckload sector? Yeah, I mean the truckload sector is firing on all cylinders
1: at the moment. I mean, if you take a couple of bellwethers, Night Transportation and and Warner Enterprises, uh, Night Transportation, um, you know, reported record results. They're forecasting earnings per share of over five dollars in the in, in in this year in twenty twenty two and really operating at an incredible level. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, John, when you think about the Swift truckload business in the quarter, operated at about a 65 OR. This is not a rail company. This is a trucking company. This is a trucking company earning rail-like margins. And Knight was also kind of in the low 70s OR. And and, and so it, it's almost, it, it won't get better than that, but I think over the course of this year, 2022, we predict Knight, should have margins in 2022 that are equivalent to the sky-high margins that they achieved in 2021. And Warner, I would just say, and sorry for going on and on, but Warner, uh, one of the nice things about Warner is that not only did they report remarkable results, low 80s operating ratio again, but the CEO, Derek Leathers, talked about the company being able to achieve 10% Uh, annual growth for the next five years and mid-cycle margins. That would imply that the company's profits in their trucking business would grow by 45% over the next five years relative to what they did in 2021. And 2021, as you know, and everybody knows, were record results. So um, I think the trucking businesses are better. I think they're managed in a way that make them less cyclical, where the margins are more resilient than I think market participants uh, give them credit for. That will take time to reflect in the equity values of the companies, but these businesses are firing all cylinders, and they're also inherently better businesses because of the way they're managed.
0: Let's talk a little bit about capacity and one of the numbers that a lot of people look at when they, you know, looking at capacity, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. Of course, we at FreightWaves have the o Dry number. Um, I know some analysts like to look at that Landstar BCO number that comes out every quarter. Putting aside how Landstar had a very good quarter, that BCO number has been rising pretty regularly and it's kind of undercutting the argument that there's this massive driver shortage. Uh, Maybe it's that that there's a a shortage of people who want to be company drivers, and in fact they're going into the independent owner-operator field. But that, uh, if if we take that that idea that the the Landstar BCO number is a really strong indicator, what do you think about capacity right now? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a really strong indicator. I mean, I think I think it's an indicator.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I I think we're talking about you know the problem is the trucking market is so big and so vast. It's always very difficult to take you know, one company's data point, whether it's 10 or 11,000 business capacity owners that Landstar reports and extrapolate that into what it means. I think Landstar has a very um, uh, attractive platform for independent owner-operators And it's never been more lucrative or profitable to drive a truck. So I think it makes sense that Landstar specifically is seeing um, uh, growth in their BCO counts. But I don't know if that's that accurate of an indicator that can be extrapolated to the whole industry. I do think the freightway sonar data in terms of the rejection index is much more interesting in in terms in terms of a gauge of overall and I don't, I don't I haven't looked at that recently but last time I checked it was in the 25 26% level uh, my bet is it's probably at that level currently
0: but I mean, it, that's it, it, it's kind of peaked for a little bit i mean it's down a little bit but still very strong
1: yeah but the point is is that you know drivers are rejecting one in four loads and that just tells you uh, why are they rejecting that? Are they rejecting that because they can't find drivers, or or companies can't find drivers? Are they rejecting it because there's other freight opportunities? I mean, one of the interesting things that you've seen um, with Knight and other trucking companies is their length of haul has shrunk because they've um, they've shown an ability to to realize better yields with less utilization uh, because of the freight selection opportunities out there. So I, I think I think that you know. Um, that's a real. That's a real good sign. The 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 key thing for me in why th- there's a driver shortage is because I think I think when you look at large trucking companies, they're parking a lot of their assets. Um, you know, if you look at Night Transportation, the largest public truckload company in the country, you know, if you looked at their idle fleet today, their idle fleet alone would represent one of the largest fleets in the industry. Um, and and that's they're not doing that out of um, uh, you know, from a, from a level of proactiveness is that I think they're really having a hard time finding drivers. And, and so at the end of the day, you know, um, this driver shortage is showing up in tractor counts. Uh, companies not able to grow their tractor counts. is showing up in utilization to a certain degree, miles per tractor per week. Pricing is more than offsetting it. So pricing powers, pricing growth has doubled the decline in utilization. So companies are still growing revenues. But but let's let's make no mistake about it. The other thing is independent or operators. Let's be honest, made a killing last year. So mm-hmm. so if you're going into um, you know an independent or operator, say making fifty sixty thousand dollars a year, and by November or September or October they're at eighty thousand a year. Well, they might just take the rest of the year off and spend a little bit more time with their family during the holidays. We saw a lot of that happen last year, and so I think I think that you know it's it's a very real thing. Uh the, the alcohol clearinghouse is a very real thing. There's all these cyclical and structural factors that have limited asset growth in probably the most, you know, in the most lucrative trucking market. That's the first best indicator that they're having a hard
0: time seating the trucks. And all this is happening with fuel costs at their highest level in seven to eight years. Now we know, of course, that these companies have fuel surcharges. They try to pass it on to the shippers. I mean, certainly the shippers would tell you that it's a headwind, but there are empty miles out there. You know, most companies. Uh, in their non-dedicated divisions, probably run around 10 to 12% empty miles. Uh, Those are being done on a lot more, a lot higher fuel costs, and you can't pass them on to everybody if it's empty. So are you kind of surprised that this hasn't become more of a problem, or or is it something you're concerned with? I'm not concerned about it at all. I mean, fuel uh,
1: represents a big cost item for trucking companies, but keep in mind, it's it's a percentage of the cost structure, whereas pricing is applied to the entire revenue base of the company. And so um, you're right, they have fuel surcharges, truckload companies have fuel surcharges, LTL companies, you know, their fuel surcharges are very different because they're based on a percentage of the base rate so whereas truckload companies it is more effectively a pass-through LTL companies because base rates are so high and it's a fixed percentage of that base rate um, fuel surcharges revenue can be significantly higher in dollar terms, uh, because of that reflection of the percentage of the base rate. So I I I think that you know for truckload companies I do not worry about fuel because they have an ability to pass pass through. The other thing the other thing is obviously trucking companies don't pay what you and I pay at the pump. <laughs> I think I paid three dollars and forty cents last week at, at the pump, and you know obviously uh, truckload companies leverage their scale and their buying power to get better pricing on on on, on gasoline prices or diesel prices I should say, and, and then. And then beyond that, you know I think we have to all ask ourselves why is fuel prices why are fuel prices going up you know i think I think people sometimes forget that um, uh, the oil and gas economy in the United States is a big demand outlet for U.S. industrial activity. And so there's an 80 percent correlation between uh, oil and gas rig counts in this country and U.S. industrial production. So there is some demand element uh, that's helpful as oil prices go up because it's to a certain degree a reflection of activity picking back up in the the economy.
0: Yeah, Let's also note something that even though right now, if you go by the DOE number, the DOE EIA weekly number, uh, the price is the highest since uh, 2014. But if you adjust that 2014 number to inflation, we're still nowhere near there. And the trucks are a lot more efficient than they were back then. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. There was one, uh, <laughs> Look, I was looking back at you, the notes you send out after these various companies come out and uh, kind of like the good, the bad, the ugly. The, the one ugly was your email on C.H. Robinson said they're <laughs> nasty and that is the negative nasty, not like a pitcher having a nasty slider. Uh, what's going on there? Is this just too tough of a market for a broker to make a lot of money in? And how does how do the brokerage divisions of some of the truckload companies do relative to, let's say, how Robinson did? Well, Robinson deeply
1: underperformed. <laughs> I mean, XPO obviously has a big logistics business and they'll report, um, uh, you know, they're yet to report. So we'll see. But, uh, but, but you know, listen, CH Robinson, I think there is a lot of excitement around the cyclical prospects of that company, because I think spot rates are, are are plateauing, and there's some expectation over the next 12 to 24 months that spot rates start to decline as capacity comes back to the market, particularly new truck capacity, um, and and uh, and so. You know, CH Robinson should benefit from that because obviously they're buying capacity in the spot market. They're selling long, buying short, so to speak, and 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 they should be a beneficiary of that. And so I think a lot of my competitors, uh, you know, got optimistic about CH Robinson because of that dynamic. We have always been on the sidelines, not because I enjoy being on the sidelines, just because I think CH Robinson has. Demonstrably lost a lot of market share um, in in the era of COVID, where there was such a desperation for capacity that a lot of their startup um, digital freight broker competitors that weren't really a threat prior to COVID started becoming more of a threat because they they were their customer acquisition scaled up meaningfully, and so I think I think that accelerated their market share loss. And there is some element, to be fair, of C H Robinson's management. Just not really getting it, to be quite honest. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think, you know, people like me and my, my peers and the investment community have 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 been quite critical of the company's uh, lack of of willingness to kind of acknowledge the risks that are coming for this company, from especially from the NAS perspective, as it relates to, to risks, you know, threats from traditional truck brokers. And, and it's been a big point of frustration and showing in the numbers dramatically. So C.H. Robinson is a good company from a return on invested capital perspective. It's an asset-like company. And so it's very attractive from a, from a, from a, from a returns perspective but the incremental returns are declining at a much faster rate than I think people would have thought a few 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 years ago, and so I think the company needs to adapt. Now they are a very decentralized, regionally based company, and so it might be hard to affect the technology change in that type of structure than it would be in a more centralized company. But um, you know, I I, th- I think the quarter was a little bit of a continuation and a little bit of capitulation. For people who are kind of hoping that C.H. Robinson had turned the corner, at least from a cyclical perspective,
0: uh, you talked briefly about the LTLs. You know, you look at a company like Old Dominion and their incredible OR. Uh, SIA's OR was much improved. If you're the management there, how do you squeeze m- more out of this? I mean, are you well? Starting- you, can d- you well. It, so
1: sorry, John. Yeah. So um, I think I think every year OD and SIA, even in a bad market, will be able to expand margins. And the reason is the work that we've done in the less than truckload industry tell us that the customers of LTL carriers, the shippers of LTL carriers, um, uh, you know, value service significantly more than they value price. Uh, they will trade They will trade price for service all day long. And so if you're an LTL company that has good service, like Old Dominion and SIA have, then you will be in a position to... Um, be able to price your your, your your service north of inflation every single year. That means if it's a bad market, you're pricing north of your inflation. If it's a good market, you're pricing well north of your inflation because you're taking advantage of what the market's willing to give you. Um, companies that have lackluster service uh, have a hard time doing that, and their pricing and margins tend to be more cyclical. So I think that it's really key for LTL companies to have sustainable service. And if they do that, that is the golden key that will unlock perpetual and significant margin expansion. I'll just give you one example if I can. Over the last 15 years, okay, Old Dominion has, has grown their revenue per shipment 5% per year for the last 15 years. And they've grown cost per shipment 3.3% per year for the last 15 years. That means that they have captured 170 basis point spread between revenue and cost per shipment every year for the last 15 years. That is not a cyclical business. And, and, and that reflects a company that has the best in class service as defined by the Mastio survey for the last 17 years. And it also defi- is, is reflective of a company that has a really good handle of what it, costs, what it costs them to move every shipment through their network every day. So I think SIA has been investing a lot in that, in analytics to understand what it takes to move every shipment, the cost it takes to move every shipment through its network every day. And if they have good service, they're able to price north of that cost. And so that is the opportunity for companies like XPO. You know, we've been on the record talking about XPO service levels and the need for improvement there. But let me be clear, it is fixable. And I know Brad Jacobs. I know I know the management team. I know Mario Harik. I know the management team of XPO. I do not bet against those guys. They are as focused on fixing the LTL business as they've been as focused on anything in their lives. And I'm willing to bet that they fix that business. It might take a little bit longer than people think, but I still think they're going
0: to fix it. All right. I'm going I'm to ask you one more question. We're kind of, kind of running out of time. A lot of these companies are sitting on a pile of cash. Just in the last, I think, 24 hours, Knight said they're going to increase their dividend. Um, what are they doing then? Do you see acquisitions, uh, special dividend payouts, which are kind of a feature of the trucking industry? Uh, you know, they don't like to sit on that much cash. It earns the same rotten rate that you or I get. <laughs> well, I don't love,
1: you know, um, I I, I want to see free cash flow reinvest in the business to generate higher incremental returns on incremental capital. You know, the 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 NPV of a dividend payment is one dollar. Um, you know, uh the the NPV of of what OD and Saya do in their CapEx can be significantly higher. It could be a dollar and 30 cents or a dollar and 40 cents because of the higher returns on capital that they get. So I think companies like Landstar that have no capital investment requirements, it's very common to see them do a special dividend. But with Knight, for example, you know, Knight is gonna do is gonna is gonna grow their dividend consistent with their with their earnings and that that makes entirely good sense but that company the use of that company the the cash flow for that company is not for dividends and shareholder return directly it's through investments that generate much higher returns on capital over time and so you know i I think i think knight is a growth company uh, and so i i I think they want to you know either get their balance sheet even more pristine So, that they're able to take advantage of opportunities as they come or deploy that capital for other LTL acquisitions. So, we're on the record at Deutsche Bank saying that we think it's very likely that Knight makes another LTL acquisition over the course of 22 and something that's more sizable, whether it's in the 500 to billion and a half range. They certainly have the capacity on the balance sheet to do it. And so, I think that's what they're going to use their capital for and their balance sheet for. And that makes entirely good sense. And companies that have very little capital requirements, like say, uh, you know, you know, or even UPS for that matter. UPS just raised their uh, dividend by 50%. And that makes sense because they just cut their CapEx by 30%. This better, not bigger strategy is basically having them pull away from Meaningful growth capex to realize better margins and pricing, and so they've got extra surplus cash flow that they're rewarding their shareholders for, and that that makes entirely good sense. So I think you have to look at it on a case by case basis. What are the opportunities for growth and investment for each company?
0: Yeah, let's note that because uh, I had to stand on my questions to talk about next that we have some more time, but uh, that Nice Swift in the fourth quarter did make an LTL acquisition, I believe it's first. Certainly the first in a long time. Well, they second. Were- so, so MME was the second deal. They did
1: AAA uh, a little bit earlier, but MME was a small deal. It's going to add a point and a half to their earnings this year. Uh, you know, I'm not excited about Knight for their MME acquisition. I'm excited for Knight for them to buy, you know, a, a, a regional LTL company worth several hundred million dollars. MME is certainly not a bad acquisition and is a small step in that direction, but we
0: need more AAAs. We could talk a long time, couldn't we, Ahmed? That's always the hard part when I when I interview you, bringing it to an end. So, well, John, I'm always here for you whenever you need. Thank you so
1: much for taking the time. It was great to chat again.
0: All right. It, it's going to be another six months, I guess, but uh, we'll be glad to have you back then. We want to thank Ahmed Mahocha, the head of the transportation research team at Deutsche Bank, for joining us today here on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Waves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.